0: Hello and welcome
1: to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services partner for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at more than 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and data that helps power their emerging markets business strategies. My name is Matthew Spivak, and I'm Frontier Strategy Group's head of Middle East and North Africa Research. I'll be moderating today's podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined by FSG Expert Advisor Doug Jacobson, an attorney at Jacobson Burton Kelly, to talk about sanctions relief in Iran. Doug has 25 years of experience representing U.S. and non-U.S. companies on international trade law issues. Today, we'll be discussing how U.S. sanctions relief in Iran impacts U.S. as well as non-U.S. companies. Doug, welcome and thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you very much, Matthew.
1: So let's start with a little bit of context. Sanctions relief for Iran uh, went into effect on January 17th. Uh, This was really the culmination of a process that started years ago uh, with negotiations yielding uh, an international accord last July. Uh, Iran agreed to restrict its nuclear development program in exchange for the lifting of many non-US sanctions, suspension of some US sanctions, uh, both of which have really chipped away the country's economy and infrastructure uh, for decades. Uh, Now, Doug, you run an international trade law website, tradelawnews.com, and you commented last week uh, that a lot of the news headlines that we're seeing right now related to US sanctions relief were inaccurate and misleading. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the misconceptions you've heard from companies uh, on exactly what sanctions relief means for business?
0: Yeah, that's actually a very good point because, uh, in fact, I was just in Europe last week as these announcements were made, And, you know, in fact, I was at the airport and saw on CNN saying that U.S. and EU sanctions have been lifted. And so it's very important to understand the nuances about exactly what happened. So we've seen a wide variety of of reports, and news reports tend to be very brief, and they don't tell the whole story. And so as a result, you have to really look at each aspect of this and each country and because this really ultimately is a country-by-country determination. So as it relates to the United States, the United States only have agreed to temporarily suspending some sanctions on Iran, and those are the sanctions that have been in place primarily on non-U.S. persons, non-U.S. banks, and other non-U.S. actors. But the primary sanctions remain. So as a result, U.S. companies, U.S. citizens, wherever located, are still prohibited engaging with virtually all transactions with Iran.
1: Right. Potential challenges there and, and maybe some uh, mismanagement of expectations for some companies, unfortunately. You know, after the nuclear deal was reached last year, one of the big unanswered questions that, that we heard w- was whether uh, relevant regulatory agencies uh, like the U.S. government sanctions enforcement agency, OFAC, would provide enough clarity on sanctions relief to reassure foreign investors that they could return or expand in Iran, if that's appropriate for them. Um, Now, the the regulatory guidance has now been issued. It came out with the the sanctions relief. Are there still areas of ambiguity that will make it hard for companies to even determine if they can do business in Iran right now?
0: So, very good question. So, OFAC, interestingly, in terms of the timing, um, implementation day of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action ended up taking place much faster than many of us expected and in fact many of those in government so the primary office in Treasury known as OFAC and USFAC and the State Department had long promised that this guidance would be issued well in advance of implementation day that did not occur unfortunately and so everything all happened on the same day So, on implementation day the guidance was issued all the executive orders were issued frequently asked questions were issued and so a lot of us are still going through this because we're now dealing with these questions from that we're receiving from our clients and there are a lot of unique issues and challenges that are that are addressed but by and large there are no major surprises as far as the impact on US companies and non and non US companies because these the sanctions relief that occurred was was very well spelled out in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So this is more in terms of how this is going to be applied on a day-to-day basis, and many companies are now working through some of the unique challenges.
1: Uh, I want to ask you a follow-up to that, um, and, and it relates to um, export controls. Um, you know, A lot has been made about the, this OFAC guidance um, and how it might clarify uh, what was in the nuclear deal. Uh, but there are also restrictions uh, for the Bureau of uh, Industry and Security, BIS, and I know you've commented on that in the past. Uh, can you tell us, it, I mean, th- these were not really addressed in the deal, so based on these restrictions that are in place, what type of limitations does that put on companies as they potentially go in or expand in Iran?
0: So, very good question and a very important um, thing to understand because U.S. US law and VIS, which is the agency that has primary jurisdiction over exports and re-exports of items to Iran and other countries, none of their regulations changed at all. So while some restrictions were, were lifted in terms of the sanction side, the export controls remain in place. So as a result, U.S. law is very broad, and unlike many other countries, US, the U.S. controls the export and re-export of U.S. origin items wherever located, as well as um, non-U.S. items that incorporate more than a de minimis amount of U.S. content. So in the case of Iran, anything manufactured outside of the United States that would be intended for Iran would be restricted if it contains more than 10 percent U.S. content by value. So these re-export controls and export controls still exist, And it's very important for non-U.S. companies to understand those because they cannot order a U.S. part or component directly from a U.S. manufacturer if it's going to be incorporated or resold
1: to Iran. Okay, so some important restrictions that remain that that are not getting as much attention, so I'm I'm glad you're able to answer that, appreciate that answer. Our clients include uh, U.S. and non-U.S. multinational companies. Uh, and the most active in Iran are those who have built up a presence you know they 've had previously authorized transactions. they have the sanctions exemptions in sectors like agriculture food beverage uh, you know medical devices, pharmaceuticals uh, d- Does sanctions relief help u s companies that have been operating there through uh, exemptions in, in any significant significant way, or is this something that actually more than anything else puts them at a disadvantage to non u s competition
0: so in terms of of understanding the impact of what the U.S. has agreed to do to modify the U.S. sanctions. The U.S. has had a liberal licensing policy for many years on Iran as it relates to the export of agricultural commodities, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and medicines, and other types of items that are considered to be humanitarian in nature to Iran. Those changes, those the current changes, will not impact those sectors. Those sectors still are authorized. U.S. companies and non-U.S. companies who are involved in the export or re-export of U.S. origin medical products or agricultural commodities to Iran still can engage in those transactions. Again, as long as there is a As long as it's licensed, meaning whether there's a specific license, meaning a piece of paper that's received from OFAC, which is required in certain cases, and in certain cases, certain certain medical devices that are considered to be basic medical devices, certain agricultural commodities can be exported and re-exported from the United States to Iran through these general authorizations. The one thing that really will have a positive impact on those types of products, which have long been authorized. Are payments, and that is because many of the large Iranian banks, which have been have been included on OFAC's specially de- designated nationals list for a long time, and so as a result, payments, whether even if they were authorized by OFAC, could still not be um, routed through a one of these prohibited Iranian banks. Now, many of those banks. Were now, are now removed from the SDN list. And as a result, European banks can engage in financial transactions with them, even though no U.S. banks still can operate with Iranian banks. But what that will do, though, is it will make it much easier for payments to be processed from Iran, because some of the large commercial banks in Iran, such as Bank Tejarat, which have played a major role in letters of credit and other types of commercial transactions with Europe, those, that bank is no longer on the SDN list, and therefore um, European banks are more likely to be able to reengage with certain Iranian banks to make these types of humanitarian transactions um, more manageable from a practical
1: perspective it's it's a good point and uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot with Iran as we do in some other markets is th- this banking issue has really been almost seen as a cost of doing business uh, just as some companies that operate in Saudi Arabia see saudiization as a cost in doing business extra you know from another market uh, banking transactions the difficulty with that the time and resources spent on it has been a cost in doing business so if nothing else that brings it down a little bit now, which banks come back and whether any larger banks come back, including Europeans, that remains to be seen. And, and some of them, I think most of them are going to be taking a, a wait and see approach, uh, something that will be interesting to watch over the coming uh, months and, and years.
0: Absolutely. In fact, I was in, uh, when I was in Europe last week, I did speak to some of the major compliance staff from some of the major European banks, and many of them are still in a holding pattern. No decisions have been made. They are considering the issues, but as you recall, many of these large banks have already been subject to significant um, enforcement actions by OFAC in the past, and they have had, um, it's been a very costly exercise. So these companies must make several determinations, primarily from a risk-benefit analysis and cost-benefit analysis, as to whether they really think it's going to be worth it to engage in transactions with Iran, and only time will tell. Yep.
1: Yep, absolutely. And w- one of the indications that, that we've gotten is that if there are European banks that are returning, it would more likely be uh, third-tier banks, may- maybe second-tier banks that are smaller, that maybe don't have as much to worry about as far as their exposure to, to the U.S. Uh, financial system. Uh, but but yeah, we we will see.
0: Exactly. And, that, and that, I think that's the essential point, which is exposure to the U.S. financial system. Because I said it from the beginning, again, because U.S. sanctions, the primary sanctions have 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 remained in place. No U.S. dollars, no transactions with a correspondent a bank account in the United States or any banking institution in the U.S. As it relates to an Iran transaction, those are still prohibited. And as a result, European these larger European banks with significant U.S. operations, particularly as it relates to U.S. dollar clearing, those types of of transactions um, all remain off limits. And therefore, there are significant compliance challenges.
1: Staying somewhat on this theme, thinking about European companies or really just other non-U.S. companies specifically, not all sanctions were lifted that affect their ability to operate in Iran. Can you summarize the main ongoing restrictions they must be aware of um, when it comes to U.S. sanctions?
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. So again, several, again, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action only involved nuclear sanctions. So the U.S. has other sanctions programs as well, and, and European and Europe, Europe does as well, um, on other aspects, such as terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, Iran's nuclear program. Um, and in fact, the day after the JCPOA announcement, the U.S. imposed additional sanctions on Iran on 11 parties because of the recent missile test there. So, There are a whole host of other sanctions that remain in place. For example, many parties still remain, many parties in Iran, as well as many banks in Iran, still are included on OFAC's SDN list. And as a result, there are still secondary sanctions in place for banks and other parties that engage in certain transactions with those parties. As a result, it's very important for non-U.S. actors, whether you're a distributor, whether you're an exporter, whether you're a manufacturer, whether you're a financial institution, you have to make sure that you do your restricted party screening, making sure you screen all of the parties to the transaction against the SDN list, um, as well as the European lists um, as well. Another important point is that As I said, many parties in Iran still remain on the SDN list and are still subject to secondary sanctions. A good example of that is one of the major port operators in Iran, known as Tidewater Middle East Company. Tidewater remains on the SDN list. Tidewater controls many of the container ports in Iran. And as a result, non-U.S. companies need to make sure that they are not engaging in transactions with those parties, um, with the, through those terminals, because they can be subject to secondary sanctions. So again, there are still many aspects of U.S. and non-U.S. sanctions that still remain in place.
1: You brought up an interesting point there on, on Tidewater, because obviously it impacts the ability of companies, if, they, if they're restricting what ports they're using, to get their products to the market, um, to, to do all sorts of other... Uh, aspects of, of business that, that are important on a daily basis. I, I believe that Tidewater was determined to not uh, operate the uh, port at Bandar Abbas. W- was that a surprise? And does that clear the way for more business?
0: No, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. That was a big surprise. The One of the statements made in the, um, in the OFAC guidance said that the container terminal at Bandar Abbas does not appear to be owned or controlled by Tidewater Middle East Company. The impact of that is very important because Bandar Abbas is the closest port um, in Iran. It's right across the Strait of Hormuz from the United Arab Emirates. So it's a very convenient place to stop. It's only a very short boat trip for a container that's, you know, that has been in the UAE from wherever destination around the world. And as a result, that terminal has been off limits because it has always been well known to be owned and controlled by Tidewater. So something occurred in the intervening period. OFAC has agreed that it's not owned or controlled by Tidewater, and therefore transactions with the Bandar Abbas port can now take place. Again, we'll have to stay tuned because that could change. And that does raise an important question in terms of ownership and control, because there still remains this general concept under U.S. law that a party in Iran that's owned or controlled by an SDN is still an SDN is considered to be an SDN themselves. So even though they're not on the SDN list, these there are still significant risks, particularly because of the significant um, uh, role that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps plays in Iran, and they. Have a, a major impact on business and are involved. Their tentacles are pretty much all over the Iranian economy, and the IRGC remains prohibited. And so, therefore, it's, it's incumbent on, upon parties to do their due diligence to make sure that they're not engaging in a transaction that is uh, involving a party owned or controlled by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps.
1: Uh, absolutely. A lot of, I think, very interesting points there, uh, g- good insight o- on your one of your points there on Bandar Abbas and its importance uh, close to to being uh, to to the UAE, uh, a lot of conversations we have with our clients on Iran in the recent past is um, debating uh, between what they call the Turkish model, uh, which is working through uh, Turkish partners in the past in order to get into Iran, versus the Dubai model. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if something like Bandar Abbas being uh, clear to to be used might shift that uh, power a little bit. Where companies that are hubbing from uh, Dubai or that have more business interests there might start to look at that as another option, uh, depending on what their presence is in Iran. And obviously, if they can be there.
0: No, I think you're exactly right because the um, uh, when you you know logistics are an important aspect in terms of cost and the turn and and transporting a container from even from from southern Turkey. Um, across the border, um, down to, to Tehran, um, is expensive. There are, there are mountain ranges. There are other issues in that region that are problematic. And all of my clients who are author, who are involved with authorized, let's say, humanitarian products, um, that are shipped by container, that they all prefer, their, their customers are all wanting them to ship to Bandar Abbas from a cost perspective as well as even though Bandar Abbas may be further away from um, from Tehran than Bandar Bashir, which is up the um, uh, up, up up the coast a little bit, um, that the roads because of the mountains and the roads, there's a much more direct path from Bandar Abbas, and so that's why it's a much more uh, much more uh, requested terminal than going through by truck from Turkey or by you know another port in Iran.
1: Yep. The logistics and I can tell you market access, huge issue for a lot of our clients right now. So this is definitely something for them to keep an eye on. I, I want to shift a, a little bit. You know, A, a lot has been made uh, about the Iranian market opportunity, uh, rightfully so. Uh, already one of the largest economies in the region, despite the toll of sanctions, second largest population in Middle East, North Africa. And it's a population that is young, educated, tech savvy, and, and uh, by all accounts, entrepreneurial. Uh, and, and of course, top five for uh, oil and, and gas reserves in the world. This reality is causing many U.S. companies to really reexamine whether there is any way that they can operate locally, uh, some of whom uh, we have found are very closely focused on the change in rules for foreign uh, subsidiaries of U.S. companies. Can you tell us about what type of opportunities uh, this affords to U.S. companies, if it does at all?
0: So, very good point, and we're getting a lot of questions already from clients on uh... On, um, on what has changed with respect to, to U.S. and non-U.S. affiliates of U.S. companies. So again, as I met, mentioned from the beginning, U.S. companies are prohibited altogether, in most cases, unless it's humanitarian, from engaging in transactions with Iran. However, what U.S. law has provided for up until 2012, and now starts over again, is that non-U.S. subsidiaries, so an incorporated affiliate of a u.s. parent company can now re-engage in transactions with iran so this was done through what's known as general license h and general license h allows for it returns uh... the u.s. law it rolls back into time until mid-2012 when the u.s. subsidiary provision was was terminated by the iran threat reduction act that was a law passed by congress so now under the JCPOA, the U.S. has temporarily waived that by issuing a general license authorizing non-U.S. companies who are owned or controlled by a U.S. parent to engage in transactions with Iran. But it is not without risks, and it is not without significant limitations, because any such non-U.S. company who is owned or controlled by a U.S. parent, can, you cannot have any U.S. citizens or green card holders, or any other U.S. person involved in any of the transactions. Similarly, no U.S. products can be involved. So if a non-U.S. affiliate can, in fact, engage in transactions with Iran in the future, then, as they have in the past, then they can do it. But it's it's a very difficult, in many cases, it's very difficult from a compliance standpoint to do so. And... Some The bigger the company, the more likely they probably are able to do these types of things because they can do it through second and third tier subsidiaries um, which that are independent and they don't need guidance and approval and decision making from the u s parent and they can operate independently, but if they cannot operate independently, then there are significant compliance risks, and that type of transactions cannot be done so for example, in the past, many large oil field services companies, most of which are based in the United States or have significant U.S. operations, some of those companies had used this model to engage in oil field services in Iran. You know, throughout the throughout the 90s, throughout the 2000s, until the secondary sanctions were imposed in early 2000 in mid 2010. But even those companies, many of them ended up getting into trouble, and there are some well-known enforcement actions against several of those, including cases that involve criminal prosecution, because U.S. persons ultimately did get involved, despite their best efforts.
1: Yeah, this seems like an area where, where there's a, a bit of a, a fog as far as um, exactly where where the boundaries are drawn. Uh, for, for example, um, you know, we've seen discussion about cloud computing. Uh, you know, can um, a, a foreign subsidiary of a U.S. company be on the cloud um, in order to still do the business that they're focused on with Iran if it's run out of the corporate office you know, in uh, Minneapolis. Um, are, are there um, pretty clear boundaries that, that are set that can be followed um, by companies that, that want to do this, or are there still areas where it's going to need to be on a case-by-case basis really consulting back and forth?
0: So your point about cloud computing is a very good one. And that was one of the issues that was addressed by OFAC in General License H. And just to put things in, in the, into perspective, the key terminal, key, the key term that non-US. companies and U.S companies must remember is that OFAC prohibits U.S. persons again, U.S. citizens, U.S. green card holders, and U.S. citizens wherever they are located as well as non-U.S. citizens that are located in the United States, all of those parties are prohibited from facilitating a transaction involving Iran. Facilitation, or facilitating and facilitation, is an undefined term, but generally it means, it's, it's construed very broadly, but it basically means that no U.S. person can assist, approve, or otherwise be involved in any prohibited transaction. And as a result, that then requires the U.S. parent and all of the other actors that are U.S. parties to refrain from any of their affiliates' business opportunities in Iran. And so the opportunities for the non-U.S. affiliate have to truly be independent. And that is where you go back to the cloud computing. OFAC has historically even taken the – has defined facilitation so broadly – is that if there was an ERP or accounting system or other types of ancillary transactions that were run from a computer or email that was run from a computer server located in the United States, OFAC has historically viewed that as prohibited facilitation. When the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action after it had been approved this past summer, OFAC and the State Department approached industry, and we were involved in that effort. And we rec- we advised the State Department and OFAC that to make the foreign subsidiary provision viable to any extent, while it's still difficult to do the business, it's even more difficult now than it was even a few years ago because of the pervasiveness of the cloud and the pervasiveness of a uh, of US involvement. So right so they allowed under general license age, certain activities that touch the US as long as they are passive in nature. So OFAC is authorizing some passive facilitation to occur but not active facilitation and that's really a very important point.
1: Very interesting and so it sounds like something that if, if uh, companies are doing this, obviously, they're going to have to invest a lot of due diligence and, and a lot of resources into making sure that they're staying w- within the lines of what they can do. Absolutely. So I, I want to shift the conversation to a bit of a longer-term uh, time horizon. Uh, in uh, Looking back January 2014, uh, the U.S. somewhat unexpectedly added certain types of communications and software technology to the list of products that could be exempt from U.S. sanctions, do you anticipate, through whether it's through U.S. executive order um, or by some other means, uh, that other types of products could be added to sanctions exemptions lists in the coming years?
0: Well, my crystal ball, I am not very optimistic, because we have to recall again putting this all this whole process into perspective, is that all of the JCPOA changes, as well as some of the other changes, such as General License D1, that allows personal communications related issues, all goes to foreign policy considerations, as well as you have to take into account U.S. legal restrictions that have been imposed by Congress in, with respect to sanctions on Iran. So the general license for consumer-related products for personal communications were all done as a result of the ability, the, the foreign policy interest in the United States that wants to promote personal communications with Iran- so that Iranians, your average Iranian citizen, can have access to information and they can exchange information themselves. So as a result, the U.S. is trying to promote, indirectly, democracy by allowing these types of communications to take place. And therefore, if an Iranian national wants an iPhone, um, or have access to to Gmail or to other to to Twitter, then then the U.S. has, has said from a foreign policy perspective, we. We support that other types of products, however, are still going to be subject to the restrictions as it relates to u s sanctions and given the significant congressional oversight, the only thing that the u s Congress can agree on right now is u s is sanctions on iran so i don 't think that they're going to be we 're not going to really see kind of the the uh, the Cuba model that we 've seen where there's been some easing of of certain sectors with respect to to uh, in Cuba, for support for the Cuban people, I don't think we're going to be seeing that in the near term. Particularly as it relates to these other sanctions that are significantly um, that will remain um, in place for the for the time for the time being.
1: Okay, so an, an important message maybe out there to those senior executives that are listening in, uh, who whose products are not in Iran, unless they can find a way to align. Uh, their products with U.S. foreign policy, and, and I would say definitely non-military uh, aspect of U.S. foreign policy, they're probably out of luck for now, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the questions I've been getting from the beginning. Is that is that um, when I explain this to companies, and they're saying, "You mean you know, the, you, you mean the U.S. negotiated this whole thing knowing that U.S. companies would not be able to sell most of their products to Iran," and I said, "Yes," <laughs> and they're very surprised. So they're saying, well, then you mean mean that Europe and other countries can re-engage with Iran, and we can't? I said yes. And that has been, unfortunately, part of the – that has not been any part of – that's been known from the beginning of this. And it's, again, I think going back to Cuba, where the U.S. has historically maintained unilateral sanctions on on Cuba for 50 years, even when the rest of the world could engage with them. And And the same is now true with Iran. So um, right now, European companies, for the most part, can re-engage, but U.S. companies are going to be hampered. The only exception that was carved out under the JCPOA as it relates to U.S. companies was commercial aircraft. So that's a very important um, thing to recall, is that the only area that the U.S., has changed its policy on is that it will allow the export and re-export of U.S. commercial aircraft and the lease of aircraft and the sale of aircraft to Iran. So Boeing, for example, um, and and then the other part of that is services. So ancillary services, U.S. actors can engage in those services. But again, all of these and parts and components for aircraft, but again, all of that subject to OFAC licenses that needs to have advance approval from OFAC by way of a specific license um, through an application process for those types of activities to occur. But commercial aircraft was the only thing that has changed in terms of the prohibitions on exports to Iran by U.S. companies.
1: Got it. Got it. Yep, An important development to highlight there. So, so looking at, at one other issue, uh, the, the U.S. presidential election is coming up in November uh, and the campaign is already in full swing. Uh, the potential for a new type of leadership, uh, especially a president who is more aggressive on the international stage, something that we're seeing fueling some anxiety uh, for a scenario in which there could be a snapback of sanctions, uh, something that we've heard a lot of questions so far from, from companies uh, you know we can argue about whether or not we think this is likely to occur, uh, but i 'll leave that for another time my, my question for you is what would a snapback of sanctions look like, and are there protections in place for foreign investors in iran whether they're u s or non u s companies
0: so the so called snapback is kind of a shorthand for the reimposition of sanctions, so throughout the negotiation process the u s and the other negotiating partners in the P5-plus-1 have all said that they want to make sure that Iran abides by the agreement and allows for the reimposition of sanctions if Iran fails to agree to um, to its commitments now or in the future. So this is always a concern in terms of, of any type of, of frontier market or um, you know any market that could things change? So that's a very important issue here. Now, I think we need to look at it. Let's look at it two two different ways. One is, as you mentioned, snapback. And then the other is some change as a result of U.S. US policy. As it relates to snapback, my personal view is that, yes, there is a risk. But I think that the risk is relatively low of the reimposition of sanctions, unless Iran does something, you know, it's it's proven by the international atomic energy agency that they are cheating on their commitments but even the jcpoa has a number of structural impediments to quick reimposition of sanctions on iran it has to go through a multiple multiple process it has to be approved by the united nations there's a whole mechanism in the jcpoa for snapback it's a concern but I don't think it's a significant concern. I think that they're actually, at least from the the bigger concern, is the political risk. And that, I think, is exactly what you addressed, because one year from now, we will have a new U.S. president. And whoever, we we're a long way from the election, but who knows what's going to happen between now and next year. And so it is possible that, for example, the next U.S. president could change U.S. policy to to withdraw the U.S. from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Well, what would happen then? If that occurred, then the U.S. could reimpose secondary sanctions, which is what got us to where we are in the first place. Because it's not, it's, it's the concern over Europe and the rest of the world is much more concerned about, they want access to the U.S. market. So if there's any concern, if it's going to be making the decision or the choice between Iran or the U.S., most big companies are always going to choose and banks are always going to choose the U.S. And that's really the, the, the question that's going to happen, and um, only time will tell. But I do think you're exactly right. You have to assess the political risk in the United States as well as the risk of the re- possible reimposition of sanctions um, on Iran at some point in the future.
1: Yep, and and <clears throat> I'll add one more question to that. Uh, does a new U.S. president, um, whether uh, wh- whoever it might be, uh, as one of their first acts in office, want to pick a fight with uh, allies in Europe uh, because that's what this would uh, in- entail in 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 some way? If if there was not obviously, as you said, an obvious violation.
0: I mean, I think that the key point, at least from from my side, from the legal perspective. And again, I'm not a political expert, but I'm the legal. I like to you know focusing on the sanction side and the key point here is though, is the protecting companies so any any agreements that a, a party um, enters into with an Iranian counterpart must make sure that they have very um, clear language as far as you know what could happen if the re- reimposition of sanctions occurs, so whether it's through force majeure. Or whether it 's through some other' type of other language, it really needs to be very clear as to how the, the transaction would wind down if sanctions were reimposed. The other important point is the u s government has said quite clearly that if snapback if sanctions were reimposed, that there would be no grandfathering provision. in other words, a transaction that was ongoing, there wouldn 't be some that would not be grandfathered in and would not be allowed to to continue. Um, without OFAC authorization. So we there's a whole cottage industry over the last few years in trying to obtain licenses from OFAC to, for companies to wind down business. And that would have to reoccur if these types of sanctions um, were reimposed in the future.
1: Doug, uh, th- thanks for that. Uh, great insight there and gr- great insight in this podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. I uh, really feel like I-, I learned a lot and, and really appreciate it. As a reminder for FSG clients, uh, you can speak with FSG analysts or our expert advisors like Doug Jacobson uh, by reaching out to your client relationship director. You can also access FSG content at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging market.